0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Sarah. How
0: are you doing today, Sarah?
1: Doing pretty good. Uh, I had a live show on Friday. Um, and it went pretty good, so I'm pretty happy.
0: Yeah, it was your first live show as a music music artist, yeah.
1: Or at all, really, but yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it went really well. Thank you. If you haven't checked out, uh, Sarah's music yet, it's bandcamp is where you can find it.
1: Yeah, what are we watching today, Ben?
0: Well, it's a very special episode, I think, for us, Sarah. Uh, it's our first sequel.
1: Yeah, I guess that's, that's so.
0: It's not going to be our last by any means. If there's a genre that likes sequels, it's horror. The We've go- had remakes. We've had remakes. We've already had remakes. We've had ripoffs. The Golem technically was a prequel.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Uh, but this is really our first out-and-out sequel. It's Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. We looked uh, a couple weeks ago at Black Moon, which came out in June of 34. Then the production code was passed in July of '34, and then the next like Hollywood studio horror movie isn't until April of '35, which is this one. So you can see how the code kind of like immediately slammed the brakes on the genre, um, which like had already been slowing down because of backlash and censorship and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, no longer kind of worth the effort
0: exactly. to do it.
1: Was there any horror movie in production that kind of just had to like be swept under the rug or something because of the code? Not that I'm aware
0: of. Um, I know that like Bride of Frankenstein had some code issues that I will get to, but I think like the wheels of production had slowed on the genre enough that there wasn't really anything in the pipes that suddenly was like, oh no, uh, at the time. Obviously, we had Maniac. In between, existing quite outside the bounds of the code.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So, um, because Bride of Frankenstein is our first sequel, and also because it has such a close relationship with the previous movie, Frankenstein, and also with the source material for both these movies, uh, Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, I thought maybe you could kind of recap us uh, about those topics, sort of a last time on Scream Scene, uh, for (laughs) any listeners who haven't listened maybe to that previous Frankenstein episode.
1: Yeah, the episode's nearly 20 episodes ago, Mm -hmm. so (laughs) it makes sense to recap. Mary Shelley was born 1797, and she died in 1851. Uh, Now, if you want to hear more about her life, obviously go check out the Frankenstein episode Kind of what I'm going to be focusing on in her life is the year 1816. Mm-hmm. So in this year, Mary Shelley had just returned from going around Europe with Percy Shelley and her stepsister, Claire Claremont. Coming back to England, Mary's premature daughter had been born and uh, died. Her half-sister, Fanny, had committed suicide. hmm And Percy's wife had committed suicide. So in the midst of a lot of tragedy Mm -hmm. happening, Mary, her soon-to-be husband Percy, Shelley, her stepsister Claire Claremont, and their friends Lord Byron and John Polidori decided to do a summer trip at Lake Geneva.
0: Yeah, and this was the year without a summer, right?
1: Yeah, thanks to a volcano on the other side of the world. In Indonesia. hmm But, yeah, they went expecting, you know, going down to the lake and going on hikes and swimming and having fun, and instead it was super cold, uh, with frequent thunderstorms. Mm-hmm. A very spooky summer,
0: you could yeah, say. Yeah, that you had to spend indoors.
1: Yes. So in the midst of being, you know, stuck indoors, Lord Byron, with these other literary talents, challenged them to write a ghost story.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, John Polidori came up with the vampire, Mm -hmm. which is like a precursor to Dracula, Mm -hmm. but Mary Shelley uh, came up with Frankenstein. And as she explained in a preface to a later edition of her novel, she wanted a story that quote, would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror. While this gothic horror was brought to life that night, she polished it over the next two years, and it was published for the first time in 1818.
0: 200 years ago.
1: Yeah, it's the 200th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So Frankenstein, uh, when it was first published, had the subtitle of The Modern Prometheus, and I think that's something to keep in mind. As far as the novel goes, uh, I'll be kind of skimming it and just hitting major plot points, Mm -hmm. Um, but it should be stated that it is kind of structured with um, the current day timeline of a captain sailing a ship way up north and coming across this uh, guy abandoned. (laughs) You know, he's on a toboggan, he's near death, and this is Victor Frankenstein, and he begins to recount his life story to this captain. This story that he recounts begins with Victor Frankenstein as an undergrad <laughs> um, who has holed himself up in his dorm room conducting experiments with the unnatural arts? Yeah, he's not
0: even like Dr. Frankenstein. Like people are no, like, he's just an undergrad. Frankenstein isn't the monster; it's the doctor. He's not even a doctor.
1: And he brings the creature to life from a collection of corpses. Mm-hmm. But he's so repulsed with what he's done that he abandons the creature and runs away uh the creature fatherless wanders into the woods and there he learns to speak by watching a nearby family in the woods and also by reading a collection of found books most importantly john milton's paradise lost mm-hmm. uh where the creature sympathizes with satan as a tragic figure
0: yeah because it's the era of the romantics
1: yeah so this family that he's kind of watching uh they have a blind grandfather Uh, who they leave behind for bed as the family goes traveling or something. And the creature befriends the grandfather, who isn't scared because he's blind. When the family returns, the creature is chased out. Meanwhile, Victor is back home in Geneva, recovering, and he's still kind of haunted by what happened back in university. He sometimes thinks that he sees the creature off in the woods or something, But for the most part, he's trying to move on, and he's planning his wedding with his childhood sweetheart, Elizabeth. Everything is coming up Victor until the creature does start kind of coming back. Um, There's a whole subplot about the creature framing Victor or someone else for the murder of his old nanny, Justine. Um, But I'm not going to go into that, Mm -hmm. Um, because the important thing is that the creature confronts Victor one stormy night and demands that a companion is made for him. Since he cannot be in normal society, he wants to have specifically a female companion, uh, so he's not so alone. The creature threatens Elizabeth and Victor's lives, so Victor is like, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. He's tormented by this decision and ultimately decides to rescind on his end of the bargain. Furious, the creature kills Elizabeth, Victor's entire family. Driven by revenge and guilt, Victor hunts the creature... Up to the Arctic. Mm-hmm. As Victor is telling the captain this tale, he dies, and the creature, you know, shows up on the boat as well and expresses remorse over where all of this has led them, and then he leaves into the tundra. So the novel has a lot of themes that you can trace back to Mary Shelley's own life, but kind of the main themes that are often noted in the novel are the experiences of failed parenthood, relationship with parents, um, the tension between revenge and remorse, issues about reproduction, especially without women, and the differences between good and evil. Mm-hmm. So a few of these themes we saw included in the 1931 James Whale Frankenstein. Yeah. To kind of recount that movie, um, it does away with that whole current day set with this captain in the north. It doesn't yeah, have that at all. No,
0: No frame narrative.
1: Yeah. And it starts off with a Henry Frankenstein, as played by Colin Clive, and Fritz, played by Dwight Fry, stealing corpses from a graveyard for these experiments. Henry unknowingly puts a criminal or abnormal brain into the creature and uh, proceeds to bring the creature to life. Meanwhile, his sweetheart Elizabeth and a friend of his, Victor, because that's not confusing, (laughs) are worried about Henry, So they track down his previous mentor, Dr. Waldman, who is played by Edward Van Sloan, who talks about how Henry was challenging the laws of nature. Eventually, they track Henry down, and they are witness to the bringing of the creature to life. Waldman is trying to help Henry teach the creature humanity, basically. Uh, Most of it being undone by Fritz, who is constantly abusing him and tormenting him. When Fritz is killed in self-defense, Waldman sends Henry home to rest. He's very uh, traumatized by that whole experience um, and from failing. And Waldman sends Henry away and says that he'll dissect the creature and destroy him and it'll all be fine. Mm -hmm. What Henry doesn't see is once he leaves, the creature kills Waldman and escapes. So while Henry is recovering with Elizabeth and planning their wedding, the creature, wandering around the hillside, uh, he meets a little girl named Maria and kills her more out of ignorance than malice. Uh, just tosses her into, the, into a lake and doesn't realize she doesn't know how to swim. The town itself is in a panic as a result while the creature comes and actually ends up terrorizing Elizabeth. He really just seems to be looking for Henry though. Uh, Henry helps out the mob to track down the creature. I forgot to mention in the summary of the book that the creature can speak, Mm -hmm. and the creature cannot speak in the film adaptation. That's right. But you do still get a sense, mainly thanks to Karlov's acting, that there's a sense of uh, wanting vindication against his father figure. So Clive, as Henry, does some very good acting as well, was showing the guilt in abandoning his son. So as the mob chases the creature, Henry is taken captive by the creature to this windmill Um, and in the midst of the climax Henry is thrown off the balcony and the mob lights the windmill on fire. We surmise that the creature is destroyed in the fire and in the consequent collapse of the windmill and the film ends with Henry recovering at home with Elizabeth by his side.
0: Yeah and it's it's sort of worth noting that the idea of Henry surviving was a was a change a late addition to that film.
1: Definitely, yeah. Uh, he was supposed to die from the fall um, and have Elizabeth end up with their friend Victor, uh, which is the only reason why Victor's in the movie in the first place. <laughs> but, yeah, it was because test audiences weren't happy.
0: Yeah, they wanted a happy ending.
1: Yeah, and it should be like stated that Frankenstein is a fairly early horror film and pretty early in the boom part of that cycle in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's understandable why audiences would have wanted a happy ending at that point in time. And you can also kind of see how there's a lot different from the film versus the novel. Um, It basically covers about halfway in the novel and completely leaves out the captain, the blind guy in the woods asking for a companion, Elizabeth's death, um, the whole family dying, really, and also the implications in the murders and the nanny's murder. A whole lot of stuff. Um, And in our episode on Frankenstein, we discussed both on how the film uses the novel more as a jumping off point than as an adaptation Mm -hmm. material. How the film paints both the creature and Henry as very sympathetic and so leaving out A lot of these other deaths definitely paint the creature as more sympathetic as well as Henry.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, you can argue that the, the creature is sympathetic in the novel, too, but eventually he's hurt so many times that he gets twisted into this vengeful figure, right? Whereas, like, Victor in the novel is kind of... goes from being kind of like an arrogant idiot to, like, a neglectful parent... You know, and is never really as sympathetic as Colin Clive is made out to be. So, so yeah, definitely in both cases.
1: Yeah. And the other big thing that came out of our discussion of Frankenstein is pointing out the cycle of abuse mm-hmm. in the film. Henry himself is belittled by his father. Uh, in the beginning, Fritz is abused by Henry, and Fritz in turn abuses the creature. And then the creature, with this escalation of the cycle goes to the extent of murdering people. Uh We kind of see Henry's guilt about leaving the creature, you know, he was kind of forced to leave, and it seems like he genuinely wants to break this cycle of abuse. He seemed to really enjoy teaching the creature things, um, and I would go so far as to say enjoying parenting, Mm -hmm. um, which is a big change from the novel. In the novel, as soon as Victor realizes what he's done, he just leaves. He just books it out of there. There's no opportunity for parenting.
0: Yeah, movie Henry doesn't really reject the creature. He's just sort of forced by Waldman to abandon it.
1: Yeah. That being said, in the film, it's not like Henry is completely upright (laughs) morally, right? He has this obsession in the beginning, which is a little scary. And like, uh, I mentioned how he abuses Fritz, um, who is like that hunchback lab assistant. Where where that trope comes from, and and one thing that I point out in that episode is how everyone has a moment of being horrific but also sympathetic. Mm-hmm. The creature himself in the film, again, a lot of the credit of this goes to James Whale, but also Karloff's acting. He has this childlike sense of psychology. Most of his violence comes out of fear and self-defense or ignorance in the case of Maria rather than maliciousness, uh, which is completely different from the novel. Like you said, um, the creature in the novel becomes a vengeful force Mm -hmm. who is ultimately remorseful at the very end. And I think it's interesting to think about our two main characters in the 1931 Frankenstein being Henry and the creature, both being very sympathetic and the film taking pains to show that, yes, these people are sympathetic, both with the having to drag Henry away from his son, Mm -hmm. um, as the film puts it, but also the creature having that criminal brain. No one is specifically at fault for the tragedies that happen versus the novel, where they're both equally at fault, but Henry probably more so, Mm -hmm. or Victor, I should say, because it's the novel. But with the introduction of the Hollywood Code Um, We had a special episode between this episode and the last episode kind of detailing and going through the code step by step. But kind of the big thing, besides no sex, (laughs) was that the sympathy of the audience should never go to the side of whoever is doing the wrongdoing, is doing crime, evil, or sin. Mm -hmm. Um, There should be no sympathy for the violation of law, natural or human. And we talked about in that special episode on the code, how because of those specifically two huge general principles, the 1931 Frankenstein would have had a lot of trouble with the code, yeah. if not completely being changed or not made mm-hmm. in the first place. So I I guess they've had about a year to kind of get their mind around the code before producing Bride of Frankenstein. I've seen this movie once, and I didn't have this contextualization. And so I'm really interested to see now that I have this historical understanding and seeing the development of the industry at large, what this movie is going to look like.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's worth noting that um, when we identified how the original film had made Henry and the creature more sympathetic, it was in the context of the two of them being outsiders and outcasts from society and how that mirrored or paralleled um, the lives of Colin Clive, who stars as Henry, but also director James Whale, who were both uh, gay men in Hollywood at the time.
1: Definitely. Mm -hmm.
0: The idea of doing a sequel to Frankenstein had been kicking around as early as 1931, when the ending of the original was changed to allow for Henry Frankenstein's survival. Once that was done, the idea of like, oh hey, that means we could do a sequel, was sort of planted in the mind of uh, Carl Emley Jr.
1: Were sequels already pretty common?
0: Sequels weren't as common in the 30s as they are today, sure. um, but they weren't unheard of. Uh, you had films like Son of the Sheik, or Don Q, Son of Zorro, or Son of Kong, all of which served to try and cash in on their progenitors. But generally speaking, that's what they were. They were cash-ins. They didn't often have the same cast. They rarely had the same director. They were usually made for, you know... a fraction of the original budget, uh, and were very rarely as successful. Now, director James Whale was not interested in returning for a sequel. He felt he had, quote, squeezed the idea dry, unquote, <laughs> on the first film. But, uh, obviously, Carl Emily Jr. wanted that dollar money, so uh, he was going to press ahead anyways. Robert Florey, remember him? He wrote A Treatment called The New Adventures of Frankenstein. Oh, boy. uh, In 1932, which was rejected by the studio without comment. Regardless of whether it was good or bad, Flory was no longer in favor at Universal after the failure of Murders in the Rue Morgue, so Universal just kind of let him know, we're not interested. In 1933, Tom Reed wrote a script called The Return of Frankenstein, uh, which was um, submitted to the Hayes office, And was approved uh, which allowed production to begin on the movie. Then the Invisible Man came out and it was a big box office and critical hit and this convinced Carl Lindley Jr. more than ever that James Whale was the only possible choice to direct the Frankenstein sequel. Following Invisible Man, Whale had directed the romantic comedy By Candlelight uh, which had been another hit with audiences and critics and he badly wanted to make a film adaptation of John Galsworthy's One More River, uh, which was the famous English novelist's final novel before his death in 1933. Whale convinced Lemley to buy the rights to the novel and let him make it a prestige picture, and in exchange, he would direct Bride of Frankenstein.
1: That seems to be a common theme in
0: Whale's life. Mm-hmm. One More River starred familiar faces like Colin Clive and Lionel Atwill and was released August 6, 1934 to critical acclaim but box office disappointment. Mm -hmm. It was the first film Whale made that had to contend with Joseph Breen's production code administration, uh, which proved challenging for Whale, uh, especially with the subject matter. But its box office failure was actually chalked up by the studio to its high-class English period setting, not really appealing to Depression-era American audiences. With One More River out of the way, Whale was put to work on Return of Frankenstein. Although Reed's script had won Hayes' office approval, Whale thought it was garbage and (laughs) uh, threw it out, uh, as he did with the next draft by another set of writers. Frustrated, Whale brought in John Balderston to write a draft, and uh, long-time listeners might remember John Balderston. He was the writer of the stage play version of Dracula that got turned into the movie, the stage play version of Frankenstein that got turned into the movie, and also the screenplay for The Mummy. Whale was convinced there was no way to really top the original, so he decided instead to make the sequel a, quote, memorable hoot, unquote, to make it campy and over the top and as sort of ridiculous and to push things to their extreme as far as they could um, rather than try to make like a, a better movie just to make a more more fun more ridiculous movie okay he really didn't think like that he could make a, a, a scarier or even like a better movie he just sort of figured you know if I have to do this let's have fun doing it Balderston, when he wrote his version, decided to base the story on unused elements from the novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sort of go back to the original novel, mine it for things they hadn't done the first time around. Primarily fleshing out the subplot where the creature demands that Frankenstein make a mate for him, and turning that into the premise for the entire story. Whale still wasn't satisfied with Balderston's script, and gave his draft to playwright William J. Hurlbut for a rewrite. This, then, was the final version, and it was submitted to the PCA in November 1934. PCA? Production Code Administration. Cool. Boris Karloff, of course, returned to the role of the monster, uh, credited solely as Karloff, as <laughs> had been established in The Black Cat, his last film before this one.
2: That's
1: kind of slowing down for him.
0: Yes, Uh, And that is what happens when you're starting to become more and more typecast as a horror star, and the horror genre has lost its sort of luster. You know, people don't even want you for non-horror roles because they're afraid that maybe you'll bring some of that horror stink along with you. It was decided to let the monster speak in this film, as he does in the novel, uh, primarily because it would be difficult for him to request a mate from Frankenstein otherwise whale and the studio psychiatrist decided that the monster should have a mental age of about 10 and an emotional age of about 15 Uh, and they selected a limited vocabulary of 44 words for the monster to use by examining the test papers of 10 year old boys okay interesting karloff was actually upset at the decision for the monster to speak he believed that speech removed the audience's ability to sympathize with him uh, the same way that they did when he was a silent character. Okay. Sort of similar to the thought process behind the silent protagonist in video games, that the audience can project motivations and feelings onto the character more uh, when they can't speak. Okay. Uh, This dialogue meant that Karloff couldn't remove his dental plate for the role. Uh, which would change his look considerably from the sunken-in cheeks that he has in the original, which gave him that gaunt, cadaverous appearance. Uh, With the dental plate in, he couldn't look like that anymore. Makeup artist Jack Pierce made further changes to the monster's appearance and design, largely to show the effects of the windmill fire that ended the first film, giving the monster burnt-off hair, burn scars, this sort of thing, and then showing those injuries heal gradually throughout the running time of the sequel. Colin Clive also returns as Henry Frankenstein. The actor's alcoholism had worsened significantly, since the first film had been made. In the intervening years, Clive had appeared in eight films, including One More River, as previously mentioned. He also appeared as Mr. Rochester in a Poverty Row version of Jane Eyre, actually the first sound version of Jane Eyre made on film. Oh, interesting. It's not a very good version. Oh, no. Whale felt that Clive was essential to what he called the hysterical quality of the character, Uh, despite the liability that his alcoholism presented to the production. By the time filming came around, Clive would occasionally fall asleep on set uh, and was occasionally so intoxicated that he would have to be propped up for over-the-shoulder shots. Um, So there's a lot of instances in this film where like, if he's in the shot but you can't see his face, he might just be passed out and they've just got him propped up so they could get the shot.
1: I mean, I get that it's a different time, and there's a different, like, understanding of alcohol and even addiction, but, like, was there not ever an an intervention for him?
0: The whole idea of, you know, going to rehab, for example, uh, was just not part of the culture, especially for celebrities at the time, because the culture, the fan culture around celebrities was made around presenting them as perfect. Uh, especially with all the efforts that have been made to try and clean up Hollywood's image and present these people as, like, moral and upstanding. Very famously, uh, the first actor to be public about going to rehab for addiction was Bella Lugosi in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, now, actresses would sometimes have, quote, nervous breakdowns, unquote, and go to sanitariums for rest cures and things like that. But it, it generally wasn't something you saw with actors. And yeah, I mean, there just wasn't the support there for Clive to get the help that he needed. May Clark had portrayed Elizabeth in the original film. And you mentioned how the creature terrorizes her in the original film. He doesn't kill her, though, like in the novel. Yeah. So Elizabeth reappears in the sequel. However, May Clark, the actress, had suffered a series of personal tragedies in the intervening years since the first film that left her in ill health both physically and mentally. Uh, Particularly in 1933 she was in a car crash that broke her jaw and scarred her face Uh, and in 1934 she was admitted to a sanitarium following a nervous breakdown. Okay. So Whale made the decision to recast Clark with actress Valerie Hobson. Clark was personally devastated by the recasting, and her career never really recovered. She continued to act, but was more often in in small parts, in small movies. Uh, Hobson was an Irish actress who first appeared on film in 1932 when she was 15 years old. Uh, After six films in Britain, she came to America and then appeared in six more films before starring in this Frankenstein sequel at the age of 18.
1: That's quite... Different, because, like, we mentioned in our Frankenstein episode how May Clark, portraying an older Elizabeth, adds some kind of maturity to her and Henry's romance.
0: Mm-hmm. So then
1: to go, like, all the way to, like, 18, mm-hmm. that's quite a jump. That's a very strange recasting.
0: Yeah, to compare, um, Mae Clark was 21 when she appeared in the original, and she would have been 25 had she been in the sequel. Uh, While well, Colin Clive was 10 years older than Clark was, so here he was 35 uh, with this 18-year-old playing his wife. Yeah. A new character for the sequel would be Dr. Septimus Pretorius, Henry's heretofore unmentioned mentor. <laughs> uh, Dr. Waldman from the original, seemingly forgotten. Well, he was dead. He, they never mentioned this guy in the original. Yeah, you know? fair. Universal wanted Claude Rains for the role, but Whale had conceived the character, who he described as an over-the-top caricature of a bitchy, aging homosexual, for Ernest Theisiger specifically to play. And Whale got his way. Yeah. We've already seen Thysiger in The Old Dark House, where he was Horace Femme, and in The Ghoul, where he was Boris Karloff's Scottish butler. Thysiger had been born in 1879 to an upper-class English family. He attended the Slade School of Art and began acting on stage in 1909 and briefly served in World War I. After the war, he married Jeanette Rankin, who was the sister of his actual partner, artist and fellow Slade graduate, William Rankin, while Jeanette was in a relationship with Margaret Jourdain, so it was sort of a... A pretense marriage so that no one would bother them while they carried on their actual homosexual love affairs. Despite this pretense, all of Theisaker's acquaintances knew that he was gay. His stage career continued through the 1910s and he met Whale in 1919 through their theater work. So of course he brought Theisaker to America for Old Dark House and insisted on his casting as Dr. Pretorius. Upon arriving in America, Thysiger set up a display for his needlework with (laughs) price tags for the cast and crew to peruse. Uh, Needlework was his hobby, and he was considered an expert in it, frequently engaging in it between takes. (laughs) Balderston had included a prologue in his script, uh, which was retained in the later drafts by Hurlbut, featuring Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, and Percy in that thunderstorm evening where the story is concocted and Whale decided the same actress should play Shelley and the monster's mate to represent how horror springs from the dark side of one's self. Elsa Lanchester, who was the wife of Charles Lawton, was cast by Whale in the dual role. Lanchester was born in London in 1902 to bohemian socialist unwed parents. She learned dance in Paris as a child, and after World War I, she began appearing on stage doing musical numbers and plays, which then evolved into cabaret performances in her teens, doing old Victorian songs and ballads in a sort of more modernized jazz style. This led to nightclub acts in her early 20s, and then more serious stage work uh, in her mid to late 20s. In 1927, she was appearing in a play when she fell in love with fellow cast member Charles Lawton, marrying him two years later. Lawton was bisexual, but by all accounts in love with and happy with Lanchester. She began appearing in films at this time in the late 20s, in roles that were written for her by H.G. Wells, who was an admirer of hers. Lawton, meanwhile, was less well-known, that is, until his American career took off, and then suddenly in the early 30s, he was star of stage and screen, (laughs) uh, with Elsa appearing in supporting roles in his films. For her appearance as the creature's mate, the design and execution were once again by Jack Pierce, including a perm hairdo supported over a wire frame for her character's iconic hairstyle. For her part, Lanchester really disliked Jack Pierce, Uh, She disliked his perfectionism. She disliked his controlling attitude. (laughs) She felt like that because he was the one creating these monsters, that he had a bit of a god complex over the actors who played them. Hmm. Uh, And she also disliked the long makeup times. In the credits for the film, she's credited by name for her role as Mary Shelley, but in a reference to the original movie, the role of who plays the monster's mate is credited with a question mark, just as Karloff was credited in the original movie. Two of the cast members were imports from The Invisible Man. We've got Una O'Connor, the wailing innkeeper from that film, who fulfills a similar comic relief function here, while E.E. Clive, who is the buffoonish policeman, would now be this film's buffoonish burgomaster. Which sort of left poor Lionel Belmore, who played the role in the original film, in a bit of a lurch. No reason to recast him, except that Whale found this other actor he liked better, more recently. Yeah. Our favorite madman, Dwight Fry, makes an appearance. He's playing another unhinged character, Carl. Uh, This was his first film since his brief, uncredited appearance in The Invisible Man. And it was his first named and credited role in a film since The Vampire Bat. Fry had seen his film career really slow down due to the degree to which he had been typecast in these kind of unhinged madman roles.
1: Which is really unfortunate. He's a really good actor.
0: hmm And, you know, you can see in Dracula that he's more versatile than just that. hmm Behind the camera, many of the crew were returning either from the original Frankenstein or from the Invisible Man. Uh, you know, it's the same editor as the Invisible Man, for example. While Kenneth Strickfaden, who was the art director of Frankenstein, returned with his bounty of electrical equipment for the lab, uh, much of which was recycled from the original film. John Fulton, who did the special effects for The Invisible Man, also returned here to provide optical effects for this film. Franz Waxman, who had composed the score for The Invisible Man, also composed this film's score. Waxman was born in 1906 to Jewish parents in the German Empire. He began studying music at 16 and eventually became a composer for the German film industry. Then he was badly beaten by Nazis in Berlin and fled with his wife to America. Whale was impressed with Waxman's score for The Invisible Man and asked Waxman to compose a score for this film that used themes that didn't resolve musically. Whale said to him that it was a picture that didn't resolve until the climax, so he wanted a score that didn't resolve until the climax. Interesting. Vaxman ends the score with a dissonant chord timed to a climactic explosion, which is intended to convey that the explosion is so powerful that it's shaking the sound equipment in the theater itself. (laughs) His score for the film would be highly praised and see him made head of music at Universal. Nice. For the cinematography, we have a a new crew member in terms of Wales crew. It's John J. Meskel, who had been the cinematographer for The Black Cat.
1: Oh, nice. That was some really good work.
0: Yeah. Shooting for the film began in January of 1935 and was marked by a change of title from Return of Frankenstein to Bride of Frankenstein. This title, I think more than anything else, is what validated the popular notion that the monster is called Frankenstein. Because Dr. Frankenstein's bride is Elizabeth, and the movie ain't about her. Yeah. (laughs) The initial budget for the film was about the same as the original, around $290,000. The shoot went 10 days over schedule so Whale could get the actor he wanted for the role of the blind hermit. And it ended production $100,000 over budget. Oh my god. Once again, Henry Frankenstein was meant to die in the climax, and once again, Whale spared him by re-editing the ending to make his survival a possibility. Bride of Frankenstein, as you mentioned, is our first code-enforced picture on the list, and you can bet that Joseph Breen had some things to say about it. Breen objected to dialogue throughout the script about Frankenstein's god complex and anything in the story comparing his acts of creation to gods. He objected to a scene which was then cut of the monster seeing a statue of the crucified Jesus and running over to it and attempting to save the figure from the cross. Another cut sequence involved a subplot about murders that Dwight Frye's character commits and then blames on the monster. The deletion of this subplot severely reduced Fry's screen time in the finished film. Mm. Breen also objected to several shots of Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley, believing that her breasts were too visible. Oddly enough, he seemed to miss the coded references to Pretorius being a gay man, and just let them pass. Maybe
1: he... well, that's why there were like some stuff with breasts. You know, you focus on something else, and other stuff gets through.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's very quickly became a common. Hollywood strategy to get around the code was to purposely insert outrageous stuff so that you could slip in the stuff you really wanted. Yeah. I also wonder if maybe since Breen's only been at this for, you know, half a year that maybe he hasn't picked up on some of the slang terms and other codes for things yet, having been raised like strict Irish Catholic. For sure. The film was released with code approval on April 20th. 1935 the needed cuts were completed only days before the film's release and shortened the running time from 90 minutes to 75
1: so that's that's probably mostly dwight fry's stuff
0: exactly yeah the film still had trouble with censors in other countries england and china were uncomfortable with the undercurrent of necrophilia in the plot and the film never played in four countries uh because of censorship including sweden and hungary Japan objected to a scene involving a homunculus of Henry VIII because it, quote, made a fool out of a king, unquote.
1: I guess it's Imperial Japan, right? Yes. So.
0: Despite going over budget, Bride of Frankenstein was highly profitable for Universal. It earned about $2 million at the box office. Wow. Not the original Frankenstein's $12 million, but certainly better than any of these horror movies have done since. Uh, I think it was Universal's highest grossing film for 1935. In addition to financial success, the film was also critically acclaimed, uh, winning almost unanimous praise. Um, And to this day, it is considered widely to be either equal or superior to the original film. However, there was an interesting trend in the reviews of the time. While nearly all of them were positive, some of them qualified their opinions by essentially saying it's good for a horror movie. Hmm. Um, So, for example, the Hollywood Reporter called it, quote, a joy for those who can appreciate it, unquote. And the New York World Telegram called it, quote, good entertainment of its kind, unquote.
1: That's kind of like the the saying, like, It knows what it is.
0: Yeah, I think it represents sort of changing attitudes about the horror genre. Like, all these critics recognized it was a good movie. You know, they go out of their way to talk about the cinematography and the score and the production design and the makeup. Things that critics of the 30s generally didn't really talk about that much. Mm. Um, You know, and to say that that the -the behind-the-scenes crew deserved as much praise as the actors, which is really where a lot of critics' focus was at that time. But a lot of them qualified what they were saying with, like, oh, but, you know, it is still a horror movie. Um, and I think that sort of represents how far the genre had fallen in people's eyes.
1: Well, I mean, it's been over a
2: year-ish
1: mm-hmm. since our last horror movie, mm-hmm. mainstream horror movie. Mm-hmm. And perhaps what people were remembering from, like, the last time they saw a horror movie was stuff like Black Moon, right? But yeah. it's, like, not actually a very good kind of movie night of
0: terror house of mystery
1: monster walks yeah you know because the whole popularity behind horror quickly went into schlocky
0: yes yeah absolutely as, as people were cheaply trying to cash in
1: so i i understand where they're coming from with being like you know this isn't a schlocky type of thing but it definitely you're totally right that it these qualifiers are showing that like people think schlocky equals horror when that is not the case
0: So how are we watching it? Well, Bride of Frankenstein is widely available. Uh, It's on DVD, it's on Blu-ray, you can get it by itself, or you can get it in the Frankenstein Legacy Collection from Universal, which is how we'll be seeing it. Uh, It's available for rent on YouTube, iTunes, the PlayStation Store, the Microsoft Video Store. If you want to see it, you can see it.
1: Cool, so if you'd like to check that out, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. We'll be watching the film, and you'll hear a brief musical interlude in the meantime.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, directed by James
0: Whale. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Sarah, what did you think of this movie?
1: So I've been really nervous about this episode and about covering this film because everyone loves this movie, Mm -hmm. and I think The Bride is super cool, but I'm not a fan of this movie and I'm worried about
0: haters. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting. I know that, like, in the past, what you've told me is that your big beef with this movie is that it's called Bride of Frankenstein, and it revolves around making the Bride of Frankenstein, and then they make her, and the movie ends. Like, she doesn't get to do anything. I have other other beefs as well. Okay, I was curious if that was still your main beef, or if you'd kind of gotten over that, or or what. So, I'm gonna give a plot summary of this movie. But before I do, uh, I want to sort of give a quick definition of a term in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with it. Uh, And that term is retcon. (laughs) It's a term you might be really familiar with if you're into comic books, but it's only starting slowly, I think, to seep into more mainstream discussion. So retcon is short for retroactive continuity. And the idea is that You're some point later in a series, and that series tells you this was different the whole time. And that can be sort of in-story retcons, like Darth Vader is now Luke Skywalker's father, or it can be more sort of blatant retcons, like James Bond is not 70 years old, right? That, like, (laughs) those Connery movies from the 60s, like, he's he's not still that guy. You know, or War Machine in a Marvel movie doesn't look like Terrence Howard anymore, right? Um, But it always just means that they've changed something from the original, and they're just going to act like it was always like the change the whole time. The reason I bring that up is because there's some retcons in this sequel. So the movie makes the interesting choice of opening on the stormy night with Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and Percy Shelley. Yeah. And the conceit of this opening is that Mary Shelley's already told them the story of the first movie, and Lord Byron wants to hear more, so she's going to tell them the story of the second movie. And during this, like, opening prologue, Byron gives, like, a summary of the first movie that's accompanied to footage of the first movie. Basically, you know, like a last time on Frankenstein section. And the thing that drives me up the wall about this sequence is two things. I both hate and love this sequence and it's because the universal horror movies have this unique property of kind of taking place in kind of like a never where, never when kind of setting, right? Like the joke that we have between the two of us is like, what year is it? Yeah. Because there's such weird contradictions. Like the original Frankenstein, they had clearly updated it to contemporary times. It wasn't the 1790s. People are going around in, you know, double-breasted suits and fedoras and stuff. And there was electrical equipment but there was still like nobility and barons in germany like it wasn't 1930s germany in a real world sense and this movie continues that like this is not what 1935 germany looks like so you're you're kind of left wondering like when is this supposed to be the craziest thing about this opening is that like mary shelley and lord byron are all contextualized in their proper like 1890s context but she's told them the movie version of the Frankenstein story that's all updated to the 1930s, and the story of Bride of Frankenstein is still in this semi-modern setting because, like, at one point someone reads a gravestone and the death date is 1899, and, like, the fashions are this weird mix of, like, some people are dressed like it's the 30s and some people are dressed like it's Victorian times. There's carriages... It's 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 this total never-when setting, but it really, the thing that drives me up the wall with it is that it's Mary Shelley supposedly told Lord Byron a story that involved, like, Tesla coils and, like, stuff like this. The other thing about this opening that that makes me crazy, but this is the part that I kind of love, is the sheer gall of having this opening of, like, here's Mary Shelley telling the story of Frankenstein and insisting that, like your weird movie adaptation of Frankenstein is the story of Frankenstein that Mary Shelley told.
1: Yeah. The way that they put words in Mary Shelley's mouth kind of upsets me.
0: Yeah, man. The
1: purpose of the story was to show it was a moral message about mm-hmm. man reaching beyond his reach. Reaching beyond his <laughs> reach. You know what I mean. And like... Yes, the subtitle to the novel is the modern Prometheus, but it's so much more than that, and to dumb it down into a moral story is a problem I have with this
0: movie. It's retconning the original movie to be code okay, right? It's retconning the original movie to say, like, oh, yeah, that wasn't, like, a weird horror story about this crazy man... That was a a moral lesson about, like, what happens to people who mess with God's territory, right? Yeah. So she starts saying, like, okay, well, here's what happened next, and begins telling the story of Bride of Frankenstein, which, again, is set who knows when in some weird alternate universe Germany. It's science fiction. Right. We pick up immediately after the first film. In fact, we pick up um, kind of almost during the ending of the first film. Because in the first film, they pick Frankenstein up from the burned mill, they take him home, and then there's the little epilogue scene with, like, his dad, and, like, he's, Frankenstein's convalescing in his bed. And we kind of start before that convalescence scene, and that's sort of the start of the retcons. They pick him up out of the wreckage, they take him home, and all the villagers are crowded around the wreckage of the mill, like, freaking out. Particularly Millie, who's the character played by Una O'Connor, who spends this whole movie just freaking out at everything. Shrieking. Yes. They take Frankenstein home, and when they do, there's some talk of, you know, the old baron, his dad and stuff. Elizabeth is now a brunette. Which, Don't worry about it. Exactly. And Castle Frankenstein has gone from being, like, sort of a, like a 1930s, you know, rich person's mansion, is kind of what it looked like in the original, to being, like, a sprawling gothic manor with, like, cavernous rooms and dark, you know, architecture and stuff. And that's sort of, like, par for the course for this movie. Everything that looked maybe a little bit realistic or a little bit toned down in the original has been dialed up and Dutch-angled into extremity in this movie.
1: Dialed up to 11.
0: Yeah, precisely. So they take him home to convalesce. Meanwhile, at the windmill, the parents of Maria, the girl who drowned in the original, are kicking around the windmill. They want to make sure that, like, the monster is dead. The dad's played by a different actor, but, like, it's a small enough role that, you know, it's been four years, DVD doesn't exist in the 30s, you wouldn't have noticed. And he, like, goes to check in the windmill, and the monster is just alive. uh, And kills him. Just, boom, kills him. And then, like, crawls out of the wreckage, boom, kills the wife. The monster is much more violent in this movie than in the original. It's one of the things I feel got dialed up to 11. Like he really only kills like two or three people in the original. And I think in this movie it feels like 20. <laughs> um, he goes on a rampage into the countryside where he kills a bunch of people and Millie sees him, goes home, shrieks about how the monster is alive, but nobody believes her. There's sort of an implied jump of time because... Frankenstein's convalescing, and it's mentioned that he's the young baron now. So presumably while he's been recovering, his dad died. And Ernest Theisiger, as Dr. Pretorius, shows up one dark and stormy night, and basically forces his way into Frankenstein's home, and Elizabeth's like, who's this? And Frankenstein's like, well, this is my mentor from the university who got kicked out for knowing too much. And Pretorius is telling Frankenstein, like, hey... So I heard you successfully made a dude, Uh, I really want to try that, let's get together and do that. And Henry's all, no, I've learned the error of my ways, you know, I shouldn't have messed around with God, it's wrong, it's bad. And Pretorius is like, yeah, but come on! And convinces Henry to at least come back with him to his place to check out, like, what he's managed to do. So they go by carriage to Pretorius's, like, attic laboratory where Pretorius seduces Henry Frankenstein basically he pulls out sort of what he's managed to do which is make these little homunculus people in jars Uh, there's a lot of comedy business around them but the main point of it is that Pretorius has created them by like growing them like cultures from nothing but he can't seem to make like a full-size person that way so his plan is to grow just a brain, and then Frankenstein to do his normal dig up dead people, sew them together thing for the body, and we're going to make a woman so that it mates with the dude we already made. Frankenstein's not really into this idea, but you can tell that he's, he's tempted. Meanwhile, the monster, you know, is running around the countryside scaring various people. The villagers go after him because he's killed a bunch of people. Uh, the burgomaster leads a mob. Uh, they track him down, they grab him, they capture him, they bring him back to town. Transporting him back to town, they lash him to like a pole to transport him and it's really obviously Christ-like.
1: Yeah, it's they, really Jesus-y.
0: Yeah, they bring him back to town and they throw him in a dungeon and chain him up. And again, it has this feeling of like there's almost a passion of the Christ element to it. It really doesn't hold him long. Like he gets out in the same scene that they locked him up in. Breaks out, kills a bunch more people, and escapes. Then he comes across a cabin in the woods where a blind hermit lives, and there's just sort of a a tangent into this section of the movie. Like it's it's really it's kinda tangential, but I feel like it it's a core piece of the movie for a lot of viewers. It gets talked about a lot as being kind of the heart of this movie. He meets this blind hermit, and because the hermit's blind, he takes the monster in, and, and, you know, they become friends, and the hermit teaches him a few basic words, so that the monster can start speaking and expressing himself. It's a really nice, good scene. I will say that a problem with it, it's not this movie's fault, and it's a problem with a few other scenes in this movie, is that Young Frankenstein is such a perfect, pitch-perfect parody, of these Universal Frankenstein's movies, particularly this one and the next one, that it's sometimes, like, hard to watch the original scenes and just not think of, like, Gene Hackman in the parody version.
1: I mean, I have I have problems with this scene or segment of the film that aren't Gene Hackman related,
0: <laughs> but we can talk about that later. Sure. So, they become friends, and what sort of ruins this idyllic piece, because of course something has to, is some hikers come across the cabin to ask for directions, and, oh hey shit, that's the monster! Uh, Scuffle breaks out, and the hermit's whole cabin ends up accidentally burning down, and, you know, once again the monster is alone, and hated by everyone, and has nobody, so he flees into a cemetery, ducks into an underground mausoleum to avoid the the mob that's after him and this is where the monster story sort of reconnects up with the pretorius and frankenstein story where pretorius is down here in the mausoleum with dwight fry as a character named carl and some other guy named ludwig to gather up some bodies to make the second creature This is sort of where you see some evidence of Dwight Fry's subplot that got cut, um, which was that he was, uh, his character Carl was the nephew of the Burgermaster. You see them together in crowd shots earlier in the movie, and that he killed his uncle, blamed it on the creature, but Pretorius knows that he's the one who really killed his uncle, so he's sort of blackmailing him into helping Pretorius and Frankenstein, and that's what he's doing here. They dig up uh, some some body stuff, bring it out of the mausoleum. Pretorius sticks around in the mausoleum because he just likes hanging out there because in addition to being like a big drama queen uh, sort of camp character, he's also like a huge goth. And while he's hanging out having like bread and wine on top of a coffin, the monster comes out. And Pretorius is like, oh, hey, I was wondering when you were going to show up. Uh, We're making you a bride, and I'm your friend. You and I are going to be best pals. And the monster's like, sounds good to me. (laughs) Pretorius heads back to Frankenstein's place, where the good doctor has decided, like, no, I'm definitely not going through with this. Me and Elizabeth are going to go on our honeymoon. It's going to be great, and I'm going to forget this whole thing. And uh, Pretorius shows up and says, no, 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 no. We're going to make this woman. And just so that I know that you're going to do it, he has the monster grab Elizabeth just like he does in the first movie and take her off to a cave to be a hostage in a cave for the entire third act. And the monster, because he can talk now, can, you know, come into the room and threaten Frankenstein and say, like, you're going to do this, uh, with a little less grammar than that. <laughs> um, you do this. You do it. <laughs> you make make me woman. Um, so... With Frankenstein kind of, you know, now under... Duress. Under duress, thank you. They head back to the big laboratory tower from the first movie, which is the only location in this movie that looks like it did in the first film. Everything else looks different, but, like, I guess they realized this location was too... Iconic. iconic. So they arrive there, and it's sort of weird that Dwight Fry as Carl, is helping out with <laughs> the creation of the monster. Yeah. Because Dwight Fry was also Fritz helping out with the creation of the monster. Like, you almost expect Colin Clive to turn around and be like, You know, you're really familiar. Well, you look I, I like wonder... someone I used to know.
1: <laughs> I would love if there was, like, an Easter egg
0: of Carl
1: saying a line or two that's similar to what
0: Fritz would have said. You know what? Carl's going in and out of that laboratory all the time. All he needs to do when he gets to the bottom of the stairs is like Pull open up. that side door to see the dead body of like a hunchback who has the same face as him lying on the ground. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure they buried Fritz. Okay. Things are kind of getting to a fever pitch uh, at this point in the movie. They need a heart for the bride. Meanwhile, yeah, they've got Elizabeth locked up in the cave. At one point, Pretorius, like, brings out, like, an old, like, prototype telephone to give to Henry just so that they can do the scene where, like, the hostage and the, like, person being blackmailed, like, talk to each other on the phone to know the other one's, like, alive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So to get the heart, Pretorius tells Carl, like, Oh, yeah, go talk to your friend at the accident hospital to go get, like... A heart from a recently dead person who died of an accident. And he tells Henry, like, people are dying of accidents all the time. And then Carl, of course, goes into town and just murders someone and takes their heart. Because, of course.
1: Anyways. Yeah.
0: They put the girl together. We get, like, a reprise of the creature creation scene from the original, but with, like, way more money, and camera angles, and sets, and lights, and electrical doodads, and swelling music, you know? It's the special edition, revised version. Sure. They make the Bride of Frankenstein. And, and Pretorius actually calls her that in dialogue. So I, so I kind of wonder if it's supposed to be like, the Bride, comma, of Frankenstein, the same way that you might refer to like, the Requiem, comma, of Mozart? Maybe. Anyways.
1: <laughs> Carl dies. Oh yeah.
0: Does the mo- the monster just kind of like throws him off the top of the tower? I don't remember why that happens at all. Uh
1: the creature comes up to the roof and Carl's like, "No, go back down because they're in the middle of like getting the lightning and everything." Mm-hmm. Um and because the creature isn't listening, he uh Carl grabs a torch mm-hmm. that's lit. The creature is like, no, fire, and tosses Carl off. I feel like that's only there because we just saw Carl go and murder someone and we need to appease the censors.
0: Absolutely, he needs to die. Also, Dwight Fry always dies. The one thing in terms of, like, continuity they really keep from the original is the idea that, like, fire is the big thing the creature doesn't like, that that's the thing that sets him off. The big twist is that once they've got the Bride of Frankenstein all dolled up in her dress and crazy hairdo, which I have no idea, like... She's wrapped up as a mummy when they make her. So did they just like take off the bandages and that hairdo went spraying and came out? Or did like Pretorius and Frankenstein spend like an hour with like a blow dryer? Like, <laughs> this is <laughs> what happens when hair. you get electrocuted. Right, okay, that makes sense. So the, the big twist is that when they finally present the two monsters to each other, the bride reacts to the original Frankenstein's monster the same way everyone else does, which is to scream and freak out. It's probably because, like, somehow they managed to make her look a lot more normal. You know, because she's a girl, so she has to look hot. Whereas, like, the original Frankenstein, of course, is this big, like, ugly blockhead man. So she freaks out. The monster's not happy w- about this, of course. Things are going really bad. Elizabeth escaped from the cave on her own off screen and shows up, telling, like, Henry, like, hey, we gotta get out of here. And the monster is like, No! Because he's just pissed that this bride of his doesn't like him and that, like, they've really screwed him over on this deal. And he finds, you know, the one switch that blows up the entire place. Why
1: do they even have that lever? (laughs)
0: Because you always have a self-destruct switch in your secret lair. And he's going to throw the switch and kill all of them because he's realized that he's an abomination of nature. That, that the monster has realized that um, his final line, kind of the final line, I think, in the movie is, we belong dead. Yeah. Um, he throws the switch, blows up the tower, like the entire tower just, it's like the end of a James Bond movie. And even though Colin Clive is definitely there getting blown up in the wide shots in the lab, uh, Henry and Elizabeth make it out safely see the lab get destroyed. The end.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, So just a point of contention, Okay. you said how the creature was rampaging across the countryside killing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The only people we see him kill are like Maria's parents Mm -hmm. at the beginning and that's it. I'm going to,
0: okay, I see what you're saying. I think a lot of his violence is, because they say in dialogue he's been killing people and I think a lot of the stuff we see on screen is like implied. Because mostly his go-to maneuver... I mean, he does p- push Carl off the tower. Okay, um, so besides Carl. Um, but I think like, a lot of what we see him do in this movie is sort of grab people by the neck or shoulders and kind of throw them aside, and then we just never see that person get back up ever again. Mm. So to me, that reads as he's killing those people... Um, but you're right in that like, there isn't a lot of like explicit like neck cracking, you know, drawn out violence.
1: Well, the reason I bring it up is because we know that um, for example, Dwight Fry's character kills the Burgermeister. Yeah, um, that's and true. blames it on the creature. That's true. Um, and you know how word can get around and kind of explode mm-hmm. in that game of telephone. So that's why I bring up the, you know we only see a couple of explicit murders. The rest of it is just hearsay.
0: Yeah, there is that um, Romani family that he like comes across in the woods, but like again, it's just a case of him like grabbing people and throwing them around. Um, there's like a girl who he tries to save.
1: Yeah, she falls. She's screaming and freaking out. She falls into
0: a lake, and he dives in to rescue her. But then, because she's screaming at him, once he rescues her, he like puts his hand over his mouth to quiet her, and it's kind of implied that that's also asphyxiating her
1: up and moving in the process yeah
0: afterwards i mean like in the moment sure um all in all the creature feels a lot more violent in this movie though because in the original he was very innocent and childlike and you really had to like really push him to get him to be violent you know you had to throw that torch in his face a lot and you know that kind of thing and he really only killed maria out of like this kind of innocent ignorance This movie kind of still retains a bit of that childlike innocence, and especially mostly in that scene with the hermit. But like his first go-to when he sees people in this movie now is just to like grab them violently and toss them aside and push them off of things and stuff. He feels a lot more aggressive, even if the violence isn't as explicit as it would have been pre-code.
1: I wonder if that's just a product of his environment, though. Right? Like, when he's throwing people around, that's because <laughs> the mob is rushing him. Oh, for he's sure. He's not inherently violent, and I think that the movie goes to great lengths to kind of show that. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is kind of why I bring up, like, did he kill those people?
0: Yeah, I guess yeah. It's, it, it really comes more from the fact that as a sequel, it feels like they were really going for what's kind of become a cliche in sequels, which is that desire to kind of go bigger than the predecessor, right? So there's a lot more action in this movie. And that's why the monster rampages a lot more and, and inflicts a lot more damage on people. It just feels like they're giving it a lot more action.
1: So I have one thing I want to say, and then kind of moving on to the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole emphasis on drinking wine, or Praetorius saying that gin is his only weakness, or even when Praetorius drugs the wine to give to the creature to make him pass out. All of that feels in very poor taste and makes me very uncomfortable given Colin Clive's real-life situation in this moment.
0: Yeah, that's true. There's definitely a feeling of, in this time period, people not knowing really what to do about this, but it's not like alcoholism was some unknown thing because i mean the dangers of it were what led to the temperance movement and prohibition and all that stuff to begin with right yeah
1: yeah but seeing a problem and knowing how to help are two different things
0: yeah or even to be aware of you know like you can know someone's an alcoholic but you might not be aware that having those story elements around or or doing those things could be a triggering element or could be insensitive like that's a level of you know Awareness. Awareness that that I think that comes with a lot of understanding that's difficult to arrive at.
1: For sure. Just commenting on something that kind of bothered me with the film, but it's just kind of like a thing I'm saying, kind of putting it on a shelf.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the thing about, like, Pretorius saying, like, Jin's his only weakness is part of this running gag where everything's his only weakness. I will say about Clive's alcoholism, if we're talking about how that reads into the movie... You know, watching it, if you know how bad it was, you can kind of see it. Yeah. Because he's, there's very rarely any scenes where he's standing up. Like, there are a few, especially towards the end when they're doing the laboratory stuff. But in most of his scenes, he's sitting. In a lot of them, he's lying down. Um, The way the editing is done in his scenes, you very rarely see sort of him and someone else talking in a shot at the same time. He has a lot of close-ups and then reverse shots on someone else. But his performance is still really powerful, I think. He's still got that tragedy. He's still got that manic um, insanity that he had in the original movie. Like, he's still Henry Frankenstein, you know? Yeah. There's sort of a cruel parallel between the way that Pretorius lures Henry back to doing something that he knows he shouldn't, but is clearly drawn to any way despite himself and Clive's own alcoholism.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a neat parallel that you've identified.
0: And that being an element of the character is the thing that feels weird. It gives Clive's performance an element of, you know, that truth, but it's so uncanny that you know, it's like everyone knew he was an alcoholic, right? It was happening in front of everyone's eyes on set. And so it feels strange the way that Whale has made Henry the character that he is in this movie, because that to me feels more exploitative of Clive's problems than anything else. Mm. That being said, a lot of the changes to Henry in this movie, vis-a-vis the last movie, feel code motivated to me.
1: Okay, in what way?
0: Well, in the sense that, In the original movie, you know, we talked about how Henry's a very sympathetic character. But Henry's the guy doing the stuff. Yeah. Right? And we talked in the original movie about how everyone got to be either a villain or a hero at one point or another. Sympathetic or cruel at one point or another. Including Henry, including the monster, including Fritz. There was no real villain, right? In this movie, there is a villain. It's Pretorius. And his role is to seduce Henry into doing something he doesn't otherwise want to do. Yeah. You know, Henry has learned his lesson. And the only reason he's helping Pretorius is because he's got Elizabeth locked up. In other words, Henry is now a code appropriate hero. And mm-hmm. all of the things, because the code doesn't say you aren't allowed to have sinners in your movie. It's just they have to be clearly villains, which is what Pretorius is.
1: That's a really good point. Yeah. The bride is so cool. I really like the bride, as a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that she is, like, a very popular thing despite getting five minutes Mm -hmm. is a testament to how awesome she is. And Mm -hmm. what a disservice to the film it is that we only get five minutes. Especially because we get, like, ten minutes of the jar people. (laughs) So I think, like, it is worth saying how... You know, this film is four years after the original. The original was still trying to do that, like, Hedrick's Betts with, like, not going too far, mm-hmm. um, having one foot in, like, kind of drama adaptation and the other in the horror genre. Um, and now that it's four years after that, we're going, like, all the way. Yeah. You see that in the set design and everything like that. Yeah. While Whale is still adept at doing subtlety in his themes or in his coding of things, in that subtext. Mm -hmm. Everything else is overdone. Okay. Um, It just feels like a bit much. Yeah. And um, as much as the music is great, the music is so much in the climax. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's too much for me. I went back and watched the creation of the creature from the first film and it doesn't have a score because it's so early in sound technology, but like... The fact that there's no score with it allows it to kind of stand on its own. I wish there had just been less in The Bride's creation.
0: It's definitely a very bombastic score. That being said, bombast was the style of scores at the time. If you listen to, you know, King Kong or any of sort of the contemporary big musical scores, they all kind of sound like this. So while I I absolutely see and agree with what you're saying, I just want to point out that it wasn't like Franz uh, Boxman was, you know doing something weird by going super over the top, right?
1: Yeah, I just feel like despite its bombasticness, um, it takes away some of the weight of what's going on. The other thing (laughs) that just gets my goat about it being overdone and just hitting me over the head about it is this film's religiosity.
0: Yeah, that's definitely an element in this movie that... that Is a bit much. (laughs) It's so interesting to me because... Like, the first film touches on religion, but in a very, like, intentionally blasphemous way, right? Yeah. So the religiousness in this movie almost feels like a, a reverse course that really feels, like, again, code-motivated.
1: Pretorius puts himself analogous to Satan. Satan's mm-hmm. one of the jar people. Um, and you can kind of see that in the way that his character's a bit like Faust. Mm-hmm. Um, and luring and tempting people.
0: Yeah, he's the he's the Mephistopheles to Henry's Faust.
1: Yes, I definitely got the Faust person mixed up, but um, the Jesus imagery with the creature mm-hmm. when he first meets the hermit. There's a crucifix above the bed that gets its own fading shot.
0: Yeah, yeah, it fades out a second later.
1: And even like the hermit himself being like, "Oh, thank you, God," and like having like this prayer moment. It just feels out of place in this film. And, like, if there was going to be, like, bringing in religious themes or symbolism, I would have expected Whale to be a bit less heavy-handed with it. Mm. So I wonder if it's with the censor board mm-hmm. um, trying to, like... Not appease because of, like, what the censor board has asked for, but to put that in to allow for stuff like the violence or whatever to kind of get through. Mm-hmm. But, like... It really bothers me, Um, and I think the reason why it bothers me is because it tries to, like what you pointed out earlier, it tries to retcon the first film, and with the beginning framing narrative, or prologue, or whatever, Mm -hmm. it tries to retcon the novel.
0: Yeah, yeah, to say that, like, this is the story that Shelley told, which it isn't.
1: Yeah, and I, that might be why it bothers me so much, but... Or, like, that might be an element as to why it bothers me so much. But I, yeah.
0: I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion here, Sarah. Because I identified all the same things you did, right? That the film builds and builds and builds to this event and then just sort of stops. That it's super over the top compared to the first one. That everything's, like we said, dialed up to 11. And I even talked about that in the intro, right? That, like, that was almost Whale's goal. He said, "Like, yeah, I'm not going to make a better movie than Frankenstein, so let's just make like a A bigger movie, a bigger movie, like a totally balls to the wall crazy movie." And I think you you see that. Um, I also identified the you know the Christ imagery and the the these changes, but I don't necessarily think they make the movie bad.
1: Okay, I can explain why maybe not so much bad, but why it makes the film
0: not cohesive. The thing about Bride of Frankenstein, for me, is that it's a really different movie than Frankenstein, and I think it's trying to do and be something very different, which is part of the reason why I think if you compare it tonally or obviously story-wise with the original, it's really jarring. It's almost like, you know how people talk about the difference between like the Joel Schumacher Batman movies and the Tim Burton Batman movies—it's like if the same dude made both of those <laughs> in a way. Sure. Um, but if you if you if you want to go into more depth about kind of why you feel these elements—maybe ruins a strong word—but like make the movie um, not cohesive for you, uh, like go for it, and then maybe I can go into why I think it is cohesive, but cohesive is as a unit of just Bride of Frankenstein. It's incohesive if it's Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but I think it totally works if you're just looking at Bride alone.
1: Okay. So, to kind of explain further, I need to talk about Pretorius a little bit. You talked about, in the beginning, in the context setting, how Pretorius was supposed to be a campy homosexual character. hmm And how they got that past the censors, we'll never know. hmm And you can kind of see it with Thysicker's performance, Mm -hmm. like um, a bit in his voice, definitely the camp aspect. But if our villain, as you've identified, is queer, Mm -hmm. and his evil action is luring others into sin, Mm -hmm. Henry, with the curiosity of, you know, the science Mm -hmm. stuff, and also away from his heterosexual marriage... Yep. And even with the creature luring him into doing evil doings mm-hmm. by pretending to be a friend. It makes me ask the question of, like, is the fear... I, I don't think the fear is queer people.
0: Is, yeah, is it a gay panic movie?
1: I think it um, is more about, like, don't be tempted by the devil. Sure. I don't think it's explicitly be afraid of queer people, especially considering the people who made it, mm-hmm. you
0: know? Right.
1: So that's the fear. Uh uh-huh. In the creature's storyline, we see him come face-to-face with hatred mm-hmm. from people. Yeah. And we see him reflect that hatred and animosity in those times as well. When he meets the hermit, he learns a little bit of, you know, friendliness. Yeah. And I don't know whether to say compassion, because it's not quite there. Kindness. It, kindness. There we go. And then that's dashed away, and we see the hatred given to him again by the bride being afraid, Mm -hmm. you know, screaming at him. And I have to wonder, like, why is all of this stuff about hate and the creature as a sympathetic being in the film here, Mm -hmm. Um, unless to say something about hate? Mm -hmm. If any, like, I would ask if the film is trying to say that hatred is learned, um, I mean, like, this is going back to the first one, which you said, you know, try to see bride as its own thing. But Maria doesn't care about what the creature is. She just wants to, like, play
0: yeah, and Yeah, she's a child,
1: yeah. Yet we see with the bride, whose brain is created artificially,
2: mm-hmm.
1: has hatred, so hatred is not learned. Right. Kind of a side note here is that, like, What, why, why is there so much hate in this movie, uh, would be resolved if, if it was Elizabeth's heart that was put into the
0: creature? Oh, I, I definitely have that exact, every time I watch this movie and like Elizabeth's tied up and she's in the cave and they're like, we need a heart for the creature. And like, Henry's like, right, but Elizabeth is alive, right? And Pretorius is like, yeah, totes. Totes alive, Henry. Like, I keep feeling like that's where the movie is going, is that, like, they're going to pull out Elizabeth's heart and put it in the the bride. And if, like, that was the case, it would also make Elizabeth a more significant character to the extent that the title being Bride of Frankenstein could also maybe still fucking make sense. Yeah. So I, I I totally agree with you that, like, that feels, that feels like it's so close to being a thing that makes sense that that almost feels like that must have been in a previous draft that the production code said, mm, no. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. I don't know that for certain, but it's <laughs> one of those things that, that feels there. Kind of like, you know, there's other bits in this movie where, like, even the scene where Carl does kill that that woman who they do get the heart from is, like, so barely in the movie. There's there's a lot of points like that where you can feel the cuts coming in. You can feel the hand of the censor board.
1: Definitely. So, yeah, I just feel like why is the emphasis on, like, it's the environment that makes you so much in there if the creature is just automatically damned because he's this monstrosity, mm-hmm. you know? And we belong dead. He's cursed to be sent back to dead. Yeah. And if that's, like, <laughs> I guess that's why I'm, like, frustrated because, other, like, besides this thing about hatred and learned hatred, environment, law. the only other thing that's going on mm-hmm. is the Christianity thing.
0: Yeah, and if the creature's like so damned and such an abomination, why is he associated with Christ all the time?
1: Exactly. And it's not even just Christianity. It's specifically, I feel, Catholicism because of the, the crucifixes that we see always around. Well,
0: I mean, cu- crucifixes aren't like a, a Catholics-only kind of deal. But um, the
1: um my understanding is Catholicism really focuses on the suffering and death of Christ.
0: That's true. Um the reason why I just want to sort of pump the brakes on that a little is just because Germany is a a, a Protestant country by and large. But but yes, you you you're right that like the preponderance of it feels Catholic. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean like the only reason I can think for why the bride would scream and hate the creature as much as she clearly does, is I would scream too if my only purpose upon creation was to serve to prop up another. <laughs> that's supposed to be a joke, he's yeah. supposed to laugh. Yeah. But anyways, I think, like, oh yeah, so that's, because they don't mesh, that's why this doesn't feel like a cohesive movie to me.
0: Sarah, I love all of your points. And do you know why I love all of them? Why? Because I have something to say about every single one of them. Okay, sweet, all right. I don't quite know where to start, but maybe I'll start around where you started.
1: Yeah, I just threw a shit ton of stuff at you.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna serve it right back. (laughs) The film does, the film is almost an anticlimax, right? It builds and builds for the whole running time at a fevered pitch to the creation of the bride. Um, And then once she's around, the film ends. (laughs) Harshly, I feel like maybe this is because they obviously weren't going to reach the natural conclusion of having the bride and the creature get together, given that this is a code film. <laughs> um, I will say Elsa Lanchester does a fantastic job with what little she has. Definitely. Um, she, you know, she immediately creates like this indelible, iconic character with no lines and barely any screen time, uh, like you said. So you have the Christ stuff, which you've identified, right? The creature is shown suffering a lot. He's shown being Christ-like. You know, we identified the We Belong Dead, which is like the thesis of the film, is a huge change from the attitude of the original, right? The original presented a very compelling case that the problem wasn't necessarily that Henry made the creature or that the creature existed. The problem was humanity's rejection of both, right? And we sort of talked about the idea that maybe Henry and the creature were a metaphor for gay men in the sense of being outsiders and being outcasts, right? Um, but in the sequel then, it's, it's, it's very clear in the sequel that you know lines were crossed and natural law was broken and that order must be restored mm-hmm. by having these creatures die. And it feels like a really whiplash twist, right, from the original? So this is why I talked about you need to look at Bride as its own thing, because I think the same characters in the sequel represent different things than they represented in the original. You know, the sympathetic nature of the monster and his bride still comes through. Their final demise in this movie feels like they were almost too good for this world because of the way that, you know, we're shown the creature being persecuted through the whole movie. His death feels like a self-sacrifice, like a, you know, he's dying for Dr. Frankenstein's sins, right? It's another Christ parallel, because for Frankenstein to move on, the creature has to die. You you brought up this fear about, like, is this a gay panic movie? Because that doesn't make sense. Like, gay people made this movie, but, like, it really kind of feels like a gay panic movie. It's about this dude corrupting this younger guy to go and do some gay stuff with no women, right? Um... <laughs> Like, it's barely even necessary to decode the queer subtext in this film. Like, it's so much more on the surface than it was in the original. Uh, You have the old mentor from college who tempted the younger student to forbidden activities during his college years, and he returns to tempt him away from traditional marriage and instead join him in a same-sex partnership whose goal is the creation of new people without the need for women at all, right? Like, it's right there on the surface. Yeah. So what's the deal, right? Right. I'm going to ask, so I have, I have two questions to ask you. Okay. Actually, sorry, it's one question it has two answers. <laughs> so there's only two successful person-to-person relationships in this movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one is successful because, you know, it's built on kindness and friendship, and the other is successful because it's built on productivity and getting things done and, and that sort of thing. What are those two relationships?
1: Well, the hermit and the creature. Mm-hmm. Depending on how you view success,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Pretorius and
0: Frankenstein. Correct. Um, so it's their, their relationship isn't like emotionally successful, but it's it's productive, right? They 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 do achieve in producing the bride. Exactly. <laughs> so the only successful relationships from two different definitions of success in this movie are same sex relationships. Henry and Elizabeth's relationship doesn't work um, because she wants. A life of normalcy and he's drawn to what Pretorius is offering and if we remember you know Whale's original conception of this movie Henry dies at the end right so Elizabeth is left with nobody and maybe Elizabeth was dead too if her heart was taken for the bride right so like you know with that in the back of your minds so the only successful relationships are homosexual heterosexual relationships don't work so the the creature is gay his only successful relationship is with that hermit in a, a gay domestic relationship that is only destroyed when outside society comes in and destroys it. Right? hmm So of course the bride rejects him because heterosexual relationships don't work and they can't be together because the creature's gay. The creature is a symbol for outcast gay men, which he was in the original. So the bride rejecting him is not, you know, you you, rec- you identified it as like a contradiction between this and the original movie where in the original hate was learned and here hate seems to be inherent. It's sexuality that's inherent. The creature's gay, the bride is not into him, she rejects him. And heterosexual normativity fails again because it can't work with these two characters and ultimately, you know, they have to die and you have this sacrifice because the monster... In this movie is gay Jesus basically he's he's suffering and and is rejected and outcast but in that suffering he comes to a great revelation and recognizes that he needs to die so that others may live and be happy
1: sure um, I will just point out as like a point of clarification that the idea of hate being learned I think you can draw evidence for that in this film as well, not just taking it from the first film.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I just, I think, I feel like the, the bride's rejection of the creature is not because of the same kind of hate and rejection he gets everywhere else. I think it's a metaphor for heterosexuality. That's what makes it consist, that's the thing that for me makes it consistent with the rest of the movie instead of inconsistent. Okay. The other thing about this movie that you talked about was how over-the-top it was, right? How pushed to the extreme it was. How it didn't have Whale's typical subtlety. Which, like, yeah, it doesn't. It's it's Dutch angles and bombastic music and hard shadows. I mean, I thought at least you'd like the cinematography in this movie because it's all... And the set design because it's all expressionism everywhere. Oh, for sure. To me, you know knowing that that was Whale's intent, right? Knowing that he didn't do that accidentally, that he, he was intentionally doing that. It makes the movie have this element of camp to it. Mm-hmm. And that makes so much sense. This movie makes so much sense. Maybe it's a kind of sense that only works for me. Maybe I'm just drawing connections in my brain where none exist. But for me, there's always been an overlap between the horror genre, goth culture, camp, and queer culture. So you have the horror aesthetic of the 1930s, the, the universal horror movies, right? And that's what really informs proto-goth subculture stuff like Vampira in the 1950s or Addams Family in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But both Vampira and the Addams Family are also heavily campy. And of course, the relationship between camp and queer culture is well-documented enough that I really shouldn't have to go into it. <laughs> Ergo, like, in my mind, there's a connection between horror and queerness on an aesthetic cultural level. You can draw this line from horror to goth to camp to queer. Then, obviously, like, you have the horror and queerness um, subtextual connections, uh, how horror deals with society's outsiders and the persecuted and how that's, by and large, the experience of those in the queer community, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like all of these links coalesce in Bride of Frankenstein. I think Bride of Frankenstein's like the center of the Venn diagram between horror, goth, camp, and queer. You know, compared to its predecessor, it's immensely over the top. The melodrama is pumped to 11. Like, Elizabeth has a scene where she talks about how, like, she's hallucinating about the specter of death hovering around and stuff. Like, everybody's just Way, way, way <laughs> um, over the line of where they were in the original, and that, of course, is how it overlaps camp and horror. Right, so it's still horror because it's still that dark, moody lighting and expressionist stuff, and it's not a comedy. It's got comic relief and it's got funny stuff, but it's not a comedy, and it still de- deals with really perverse elements. You know, you talked about wondering what the fear was in this movie. And I feel like there's almost a fear of perversity and things that go against nature in this film. So it's definitely still horror, but it's also super campy because of how over the top it is. The queer element is readily apparent. We've already talked through it. Why I call the film Goth is because really, for the first time in a horror film, you know, we've seen earlier horror films that got adopted by goth culture later, but this film is the first time I feel like we're seeing a movie that death and skeletons and sinful ways and creepy mausoleums and, and, crypts and stuff in the character of Pretorius. For sure. Um, and it, it does so in a way that seems fun and appealing. That's the thing about Pretorius. He's not presented. He's the villain. He's obviously the villain, but he's not presented in a way that's like repulsive. He's presented in a way that's kind of like fun, like rebellious in his, flouting of social norms and taboos and that's what goth culture is it's the flouting of social norms and taboos so to me that tone of this movie that that kind of is rubbing you the wrong way for me is part of the linchpin that explains these connections between all these different things that continues to run through the genre right like you know we want to talk about another intersection of campy gay stuff and horror movies you've got obviously the rocky horror picture show right
1: oh I mean yes, but I was thinking the Invisible Man a little bit, but sure.
0: yeah. Sure. And the the key to, I think, understanding this movie is is Pretorius, and you sort of talked about you know how he really hits these, gay panic homophobic tropes, and I really want to address address that strongly. Sure. Because like yeah, the question becomes like you know, Theisiger's gay, Wales gay, Clive's gay, why are they enacting a morality play that is anti-gay, right?
1: Yeah, and it's not being done in, like, a mocking way. Right. You know, which is why I was, like, not really sure what to do with it.
0: Watching the movie, it really struck me, his character, because his character in this film is the first of this type that, at least that I could identify, that we've seen so far in horror. Now... I don't know enough to say it's the first of this type in fiction, Mm -hmm. period, Mm -hmm. but it feels early for this type of character. What he is, is he's the archetypal, effeminate, erudite villain. Yeah. He's that kind of scheming, manipulative, but rarely gets their own hands dirty sort of character that we see echoes of to this day. Definitely. We talked about how the original Frankenstein doesn't have any villains, and that even though the creature's more aggressive in this movie, it's Pretorius who's clearly the real villain, right? And we talked about why, how that's because he's the one urging Frankenstein on, he's the one urging the creature on. He also has no sympathetic side, right? He never gets that kind of sympathetic motivation that anyone in the first movie got. You know, we, we said, you know, he's a villain for the code era where villains can no longer be sympathetic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it, it could be very easily said that characters like Pretorius... Represent uh, a homophobic stereotype, uh, one that's harmful or problematic. His style of villain, it, it's particularly common to see this style of villain as an opponent to adventurer characters. Like a lot of James Bond villains are the like very this.
1: masculine type of heroes.
0: Exactly. Um, this type of villain is the inverse of those traditional heroes. They're intellectual, where we want our heroes to kind of be average guys, right? They're snobbish when we want our heroes to be blue-collar. Unathletic when we want our heroes to be muscular. They're methodical when we want our heroes to think on the seat of their pants. Uh, they're also implicitly gay when we want our heroes to be good straight men. hmm So we wondered, doing the intro, how Pretorius' coded homosexuality was allowed to pass the code. But of course it passed the code. Because it's associated with a clearly villainous, unsympathetic, despicable character. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be gay as long as it's clear that it's bad. Yeah. What contrasts with all this is The Bride of Frankenstein is a really fun movie. I think it's a load of fun. I have a ton of fun watching it. And I think a lot of the reason it is fun is that Pretorius is fun. This is where camp comes in, right? I mean, I still think that Bride is a horror movie, but it it revels in its perversity. And Pretorius is clearly having such a grand old time. He's an over-theatrical Queen Bee. He's a smarmy old bitch. uh, And we kind of love him for it. If he was truly the kind of grim and psychopathic figure that um, would be digging up bodies and forcing people to make electrical flesh golems, um, (laughs) this movie might be a bit much to bear. You know, if this movie with its plot was done with the same kind of tone and seriousness and realism of the first movie, it might be a bit much. But because it's given this over dramatic over-the-top, lightly campy touch, this willingness to push everything far beyond the limits of good taste, it actually makes the film a lot easier to swallow, because it's a cartoon. And I think it's, it does a lot better job of that just with tone than with what it tries to do with comic relief. James Will clearly thinks that Uno O'Connor and E.E. Clive are hilarious. That's fine. (laughs) He's allowed that opinion. But I think he achieves more with just the tone that he's doing in the rest of the movie than any of those other things, right? And here's the thing. None of that is bad. There's a kind of modern attitude that horror movies, genre movies, movies in general, have to be, like, dead serious in order to be good. Mm Mm-hmm. And the grim and gritty movement has given us, like, a Superman who showed up, killed someone, and died and a Power Rangers movie that had a subplot about revenge porn. But a movie can be dark and creepy and perverse and thrilling and maybe a little bit scary and still be fun, still have have fun as part of it. And Pretorius is fun, and it's clear that Ernest Theisiger is having a blast playing him. You love watching him and the way he over-enunciates every line. Campy villains may have their conception in homophobia, but the tropes survive because they're fun, and we have fun watching them, and actors have fun playing them. Thysiger and Whale had a blast making this movie, and it shows on the screen. The negative impact of these characters wasn't so much that villains were gay-coded. It's that gay or gay-coded characters weren't allowed to be anything other than villains. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretorius isn't the problem. The problem is that the hero had to be straight for so long in cinema that the existence of gay people was like a myth to suburban straight people. And all of these basically gay-coded behaviors became just villain-coded behaviors after a certain point. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to have a gay villain.
1: I think you make a very, very compelling argument. Um, and I think given that this is the first time you're seeing camp, really, in the horror genre, I think critics of the time could kind of pick up on it, given these hedging quotes that mm-hmm. you pointed out in the context setting. Even if they weren't so aware of the queer coding or what Whale was doing, I wonder if we would have the Vampirella or anything like that without this movie.
0: Yeah, exactly. Camp was, you know, a specific way for queer culture to express itself by expressing itself too much. And horror is about the things that society doesn't really want to think about. And goth culture is about, you know, you don't have to be a normie. You can come over here and, and, you know the trend and I think all those things really overlap strongly in Bride of Frankenstein which is a movie that that says despite what we're telling the production code and despite what we're telling Joseph Breen it's okay to be weird and different and it's kind of fun actually yeah Um, And it's also a movie that says it's a movie that on the one hand says if you are gay you will be hounded and you will be hated, and you will be persecuted. And on the other hand says, but it's possible to have successful gay relationships, and heterosexuality is kind of boring and bad.
1: (laughs) So would you say that given this reading of Whale's subtext, Mm -hmm. the fear is heteronormativity?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because like the things that are creepy and weird and perverse in this movie... What makes this a horror movie? Like, the horror element of this movie is that they're going into these graves and digging up these bodies so they can make a girl for the creature to fuck. So that they can, like, take their little boy and force him to be, like, a good het normie, right? And they rip him out of his, you know, successful same-sex domestic partnership with this hermit and bring him into the lab and they say, We're gonna make you a girl and he goes, yeah, girl, good, okay, cool. And they make him the girl and it doesn't work out. Doesn't work out. The attempt to make The Bride of Frankenstein to give the monster a bride ends in tragedy. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think on a, a more surface level, if you were just an audience of the time, the thing that makes this movie creepy and makes it horror and what the fear is is the perversity of what's happening. But the core of what that perversity is is forcing someone to be something they're not um, and sort of forcing them into something because you think that's what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Before we go into ranking, I just want to very quickly hit on just like some, some meat and potatoes. What did we like about this movie? Sure. <laughs> just because like we, we just did a lot of heavy um, academic think piece uh, work, you know? <laughs> Karloff's really good in the movie. I do think he actually may have been right. I think once the monster starts speaking, he kind of starts sucking.
1: I don't think the creature needed to talk.
0: Yeah, because Because they had Pretorius to come up with the idea of it making a
1: bride, right? And, like, all the creature has to do is be like, "Eh?" (laughs) "Huh?"
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Like, yeah, so I'm with him on that. Yeah, like, once the monster starts speaking, he becomes less sympathetic because he is then able to be more spiteful and more threatening, right? It's once the monster starts talking that he can start being like, Frankenstein, make me a monster, or I'm going to kill your Elizabeth. Like, do it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he, he wasn't really like that when he couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But yeah, but Karloff's great. Theisaker's great. Colin Clive's great. Elsa Lanchester's great.
1: Whoever's um, playing Lord Byron needs to suck it, though. What? <laughs> I'm so bored. Like, I'm so, I'm just like, Ugh. But I mean, maybe that means that he's playing Lord Byron really well, because I'd probably be like that if I met Lord Byron. Yeah, I think like,
0: I think like if your reaction to this actor is like, ugh, (laughs) this guy, (laughs) who does he think he is? answer is Yeah, the answer is he thinks he's Lord Byron. Like, no, I think he's great, because that's exactly how fucking extra Lord Byron would be.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. So we, we talked about the cliche that sequels go bigger than their predecessors. That's definitely the case with this movie. You can tell... From looking at it, that this movie cost $100,000 more than the first one, right? Yes. Like, the sets are huge and way more elaborate than the first movie. The cinematography is immensely better. Way more stylish, way darker, way more stuff going on. Camera moves, um, zooms, Dutch angles. Um, I mean, this is the Batman 66 of Frankenstein movies. That's kind of the secret, right? Yeah, yeah. Um... There's, there's, you know, these great, like, scenes where the creature's underground and there's, like, the grates giving him, like, the bar black lighting on him. Um, the editing's really good in this movie, even when it is obviously editing around censor cuts or Colin Clive's lack of sobriety. Like, the editing's still really good because it's so fast-paced that it just keeps you, like, chugging along, chugging along, chugging along until everything blows up at the end, right? The score does that, too, even if it is maybe a little too bombastic this movie feels like it was less of a sequel and more of just an opportunity for whale to remake his own film but take advantage of all of his own growth as a filmmaker and the growth of filmmaking as a whole in the previous four years you just feel it watching this movie that like on a on a technical level you know if maybe not on a story or a theme or a tone level on a technical level this is a better movie you know what i mean
1: yeah, I would agree with that. I like the bride.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like the we belong dead.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a good line.
1: It's a good line. I wish Frankenstein had died at the end.
0: Yeah, no kidding, right? It's like, come on, how many times can this guy still keep like surviving past when like he really needs to die?
1: And I think, like not even speaking to the subtext theme that you've identified, I just really feel like he should have died.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was time. This is neither here nor there. But I felt like I should say it just because I make such a huff about it whenever I talk about the original movie. The outdoor scenes that are sets in this movie, they look just as fake as they did in the first one. They don't bother me in this one. Why don't they bother you? Because there's everything in this movie is fake. (laughs) <laughs> there are no there are no real locations right yeah, in the yeah. original they actually go to real locations they're actually outside at points. so when they suddenly are on the sound stage the the fakeness of it is jarring in this movie. everything's fake they're always on a sound stage, so it, it's all of one piece, so my mind doesn't have that disconnect.
1: does it have anything to do with um I know with Camp, there's a level of artificiality to mm-hmm. it. Do the sets kind of play into that for you?
0: Yeah, I think to build this over-the-top world for this movie, it worked in their favor to have everything be constructed. That's, that's, I think that's certainly part of it. I mean, The Caligari the, factor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the original movie was stylish, but it was still tentatively realistic. This movie's expressionist. I mean, it is, right? Yeah, At least in, in style? The,
1: Well, expressionist in the natural development of that expression, um, (laughs) (laughs) totally. Uh, If you were to say, yeah, this is Caligari-ish, I'd be like, nah. But in the development of that, yeah, of of that look as it's been adopted in the U.S. and how it's developed through specifically
0: universal, Mm -hmm. totally.
1: Cool, let's move into ranking. Where were you thinking?
0: So I feel like even if even if my impassioned plea to understand this film um, has changed your opinion somewhat, I feel like we're gonna have a big gap between our ranges, especially given where you started. I'm thinking the highest I'd put this movie is number two. I'm not going any higher. this is not better than Jekyll and Hyde. but I do think, it's better than Old Dark House, like as a James Whale horror film, like this is more fun and does more things and like is is just a better movie than Old Dark House. The lowest I'd put it is number five below Island of Lost Souls above Black Cat because I feel like as much as there's like some similarity between this and Black Cat in terms of like the over-the-topness of it, <laughs> Black Cat unfortunately came out feeling a like, a bit of a mess. As much as we like it, it's a bit patchwork and messy. And this movie, at least for me, felt more like a piece, like a coherent finished product. I know you disagreed. But I think it could also be argued it's not as good as Island of Lost Souls, just because Island of Lost Souls, you know, plays it straight in that way that I'm saying this movie didn't. Yeah. So that's sort of where I'm looking. That's my range. Two to, two to five.
1: So... My range was significantly, well, not significantly lower. Before we were discussing, mm-hmm. the lowest I would have put this was seventeen above freaks. Okay,
0: what was your what was your ceiling?
1: It had been Caligari. Okay. Yeah. Um, after kind of discussing things, like I still feel, I totally see what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying, but I I still feel like problems with this movie.
0: You're still let down by this movie.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't think I can put it in the number two spot. Um, okay.
0: I'm sorry. But um Well let's let's start just with I think the the big question. Is it better or worse than Frankenstein?
1: I have a really hard time with this because I absolutely love Frankenstein. In doing my part of the contextualization elements segment <laughs> In doing my part of the intro for this episode, um, I went back and listened to the Frankenstein episode to refresh my memory of what we talked about so I could summarize it better. And we talked a lot about how there was a lot going on in the movie that was relatively tied up. There were some kind of loose strings. And of course, the grating father figure, Mm -hmm. the Baron. I think in terms of, I guess, tone, even with Una O'Connor, bride is better. Yeah. To kind of come down to if we're saying that the bride's fear is fear of heteronormativity and Frankenstein's fear is of the cycle of abuse, mm-hmm. how they communicated that, code notwithstanding, mm-hmm. Frankenstein did a better job.
0: Yeah, I mean, I will agree with that, but I, I have to take umbrage at code notwithstanding because I feel like the difficulty of sussing out what Bride of Frankenstein's about is entirely because of the code. Because they had to bury it deep enough that you didn't notice it, right? Like, you didn't want all of the people who contributed to this movie's $2 million box office walking out and going like, wait a minute, is that movie saying that heterosexual couples are inherently worse than gay ones? Like, (laughs) that's not a reaction you want people to have. So I I do take a bit of underbridge with that.
1: So you think... Because they found a way to communicate the fear while still having a lot of this buried on top of it. Mm-hmm. That you can still accurately suss out what it is. You think it does a better job of communicating its horror.
0: No. I, okay, I'm I just will, trying to like clear. I'll agree with you that the first movie communicated its horror better. I'm just arguing that this movie should have a handicap. Right? <laughs> sure. like, where I think Bride improves on the original is, is we already said it was um, an improvement in filmmaking technique, right? Definitely. Like cinematography, sets, all that stuff, editing. Uh, I also think it's more tonally consistent. Like you said, <laughs> Uno, Connor, notwithstanding. But even she's tonally inconsistent because her comic relief is just as over the top as everything else in the movie. Yeah. You know, she's still campy. So I think it's it's tonally way better because the, the original has a lot of tonal whiplash for me. I think the script in Bride of Frankenstein is better on a structural and technical level. Even if you prefer the themes in the original and the characterizations in the original, the script of the original has a lot of holes, a lot of patches, whereas the script here is like beginning to end, we see what's happening. The only places where it feels Wobbly are places where you can be pretty sure the censors played a part in snipping things out So I think what I'm trying to say is on a technical level on on every single Score of a technical level Bride of Frankenstein's a better movie than Frankenstein The trick becomes which you prefer in terms of tone and theme Because uh, even if bride is more tonally consistent if you don't like that tone You're not gonna like bride of Frankenstein So so my vote is definitely for above but I'm wondering, if you want the original to go above, which I think is fair, I think it, this is a fair discussion to be having, what can you say for the tone and theme of the original in terms of its superiority, other than, other than the obvious that, like, you walk away from the original knowing the theme a lot more readily?
1: I like the way that Frankenstein doesn't have a clear villain or hero.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I like the moral ambiguity that it gives to people. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that it shows people kind of struggling with that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, we identified it as the cycles of abuse, but it's also the choices people make. Mm -hmm. I like that, kind of speaking of characterizations, the Elizabeth in that film is... A bit better than this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's not much of Elizabeth in this movie, but I, I, will agree with you. They have the same accent, but there's otherwise not much in common between them.
1: I don't know if it's like, like I, I, I really like your point about this being like a, the next development of the horror genre into camp or subgenre, I should say, maybe.
0: And I would, I would almost make the argument that that. Development was what was necessary for horror to survive in the era of the code.
1: Yeah, and I think um, your identification of this kind of because of the camp still fitting into German Expressionism, Mm -hmm. you know, still having those roots. So I guess what I'm saying is like, given all of these points that you've made, even if I prefer Frankenstein over Bride, I think it makes sense provide to go above Frankenstein.
0: Okay. Um, I will say, I think I presented my argument very passionately, which is a thing I do when I want people to agree with me. (laughs) Passion is a delivery. It's not necessarily an argument. Um, I mean,
1: sure. And, like, I won't... I I can't say whether or not that that's, like, a deciding factor, (laughs) um, especially because uh, I know I don't always in the moment... Find ways to use
0: rhetoric in the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's what I sort of mean. I don't want I don't want your argument to seem less strong just because I talked louder or something. You know,
1: <laughs> I can just make you sound quieter in the edit. That's true. You, know? you can
0: do whatever you want to me in the edit. <laughs> I think what I will say is I I like your point about the moral ambiguity because I do prefer that about Frankenstein. I do think that makes Frankenstein a better story. It, it's tough because I know the reason why there's no moral ambiguity in Bride, and it has nothing to do with filmmaker choice. It's because for the next 30 years of Hollywood cinema, moral ambiguity isn't allowed.
1: What is interesting is when you place restrictions on creativity, like this code is doing, it can take people a couple of tries to kind of figure out like, where the boundaries actually are and how to subvert them. And James Whale hits it out of the park first time.
0: Yeah, he did it in one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Um, So here's what I'll say. If you feel strongly about it, I'm okay with Frankenstein going above Bride, but if that's what happens, then Bride goes right below Frankenstein. Like, it goes above Dracula. Like, if if Frankenstein's better, Bride goes right below. If Bride is better than Frankenstein, I think the best place for it then is above Black Cat, but below Island of Lost Souls. That's what feels right for me there.
1: Can you explain why with Black Cat? Because Invisible Man, I'm not. I'm kind of like not sure, but with Black Cat, I feel like that kind of rhyming here, um, I feel like Bride should go below Black Cat if it's going above Frankenstein.
0: My feeling with Invisible Man is just that Invisible Man and, and Bride of Frankenstein are so different in so many ways that... The only way I can really compare them is by looking at James Whale's development as a filmmaker, and the James Whale who makes Bride of Frankenstein is a better filmmaker than the James Whale who made Invisible Man. Bride is the next step in his evolution, and I think it pushes things more than Invisible Man did. With Black Cat, it comes down to the fact that I think Bride expresses itself more coherently than Black Cat did, that Black Cat feels a bit Confused and choppy in some points, um, and maybe it is because with Black Cat they were fighting against boundaries they didn't know were there, right? They they were just at the the mercy of the censorship boards that they didn't know about. With Bride, you know, everyone knew what was in the production code. It was it was available for everyone to look at, so you you kind of knew what boundaries you had to play within. But I think Bride just feels like a stronger piece. Which is sort of my same argument for why I think it's better than Frankenstein, is is ultimately it just it just is a stronger delivery, more coherent, more confident of itself and its message and what it's doing.
1: I think Frankenstein is very confident. I mean like I've the luxury of having just listened to our (laughs) episode on it, but you made the comment how the previous Universal film was Dracula which ended in this decrepit abbey. Mm-hmm. And we're starting the next film in a graveyard. How Dracula was building to this decrepit abbey, and Frankenstein's like, no, we are starting in the macabre. That's so, cool. Yeah. I think they're equally confident. I think James Whale, when he sets out to do a thing, <laughs> regardless of how much you need to kind of coax him into doing the thing in the first place, um, he's going to give it
0: his all. Um, let's, let's decide first things first. Above or below Frankenstein? Yeah, I don't know. My, my feeling is above, um, but, but I could be talked down to below, but if it's below it, it can't go much below.
1: Yeah, I'm with you that if it's going below, it's right below. hmm We've, we've discussed how well they communicate their horror. In terms of filmmaking, they're both for where they're at in their time, like, doing pretty good. hmm You do make a compelling point about evolution of the director himself this feels like a cheap shot okay but Colin Clive his performance if you know what he's experiencing
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's not as good in Bride as it is in Frankenstein
0: I mean I think that if you know what he's going through it's a really impressive performance I think it's it's Maybe not better than Frankenstein. I, I think he is better in Frankenstein. But I think he manages to convey the character equally as well here. Um, because I've seen movie series where actors have come back to play some character they've already played and they don't, they don't bother. You, you see these movies where, where the actor comes back to do the sequel and instead of playing who they played in the first movie, they're just playing themselves by that point. I like Colin Clive in this movie. You are right that Frankenstein gets to be more of a character in Frankenstein, right? In Bride, he feels very one-note to me.
1: He's like, no, I can't. Um, I'm getting married. Uh, I'm done with that. And then, is Elizabeth okay? I guess I'll do this. And then he does have those manic moments of like when he's tempted or when he's like, no, I need the heart. But like, it's not as a diverse performance, I guess, as in
0: Frankenstein. What I like about Henry in this movie is the moments, like you just identified, where his scientific nature gets the better of him, you know, when they're when they're making the bride, and he's just like, you know, check this dial and make sure this is right, and like, you know, like if, if I'm going to be forced into doing this, we're going to do it right, goddammit. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm Frankenstein. I know how to do this shit. Like, listen to me. But I think you're right. I think the other thing is as much as I like Bride, and as much as I even identified it as being almost a remake of the original, I don't think Bride works on its own. Mm -hmm. Like, I think Bride is real good, but the reasons it's good, and so much of what works in it, is a conversation that it's having with Frankenstein. You know, I talked about identifying it as its own piece, and not judging it as being part of a piece with Frankenstein, and I still believe that. I don't think they're a piece together, but I think they are communicating with each other. I think there's a dialogue there, and I think you can see Frankenstein and enjoy it perfectly well without Bride. I don't think Bride works without the original, because I don't think you understand the way that it's contrasting itself and the way it's further developing the themes as much without. It's like how, you know, I don't think... The Last Jedi works if you haven't seen a previous Star Wars movie, Mm -hmm. or at least doesn't work as well, because the way that that whole movie is built upon subverting what's come before doesn't work anymore, right? And it's the same thing with Bride. So I think, based upon that, you know, if we're talking about list of greatest films, I think Bride goes higher because I think it's a better film. But if we're talking about best horror films, I think Frankenstein's the better horror film because it, it stands... On its own.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay, I think we're we're ready then.
0: Okay, so slotting in at number eight, then below Frankenstein but above Dracula is Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, directed by James Whale.
1: Whew!
0: <laughs> it's gonna be a long episode. If you stuck through this whole episode, that's great. There's only a few more minutes to go, <laughs> and then you can go pee. <laughs>
1: If you would like to see this list and see the top ten, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you'll find links to the other episodes, as well as an appeals box, which I feel like some people might want to take advantage of to appeal the placement of this film. (laughs) If you aren't a Tumblr kind of person, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene.
0: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can get us on those two sites or through whatever podcast app you prefer using our RSS feed. We appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes. It lets us know what you think of the show, and it also helps people see the show when they're browsing iTunes. Leave us a comment on SoundCloud or just in general, Tell us what you think of the show. We love feedback. Another great way to help people find the show and learn about the show is to tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow. And certainly, we've got a good backlog of classic horror films that we've talked about now. So it's a good time to dive in.
1: Pull a bride and scream about us at your friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, we have a lot of returns. It's a return to MGM a studio we haven't seen since they had a bit of a disaster making a horror movie a while back. That was Freaks. Yeah. It's also a return of Bella Lugosi in a starring role. Oh, good for him. He's also returning to a familiar character type because he's playing a vampire. And it's also a return of a director who's worked with MGM in the horror genre, with Bella Lugosi, with vampires, and with the plot of this movie in particular, because it's the return of todd browning oh it's 1935's mark of the vampire
1: cool well mark your calendars for (laughs) that episode next week we'll see you then creatures of the night bye bye i was sort of doing a nerd jock goth (laughs) graph but with goth over Camp Queer.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that too when I was writing up my stuff.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I'm doing
2: it right.
0: Okay. <laughs>